You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 12th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, members of Russia's mercenary Wagner Group have reportedly been killed following an attack by Ukraine's armed forces. We'll have the latest. Kosovo calls for NATO intervention after a weekend of violence amid rising ethnic tensions. We'll ask Guy Delaunay what's next for the region. Serbia's President Aleksandr Vucic has called on ethnic Serbs to remain calm, don't rise to any provocations and, above all, respect the NATO K4 peacekeepers and the EU's ULEX police. Plus, we'll have Fernando Augusto Pacheco reviewing the papers. What can we expect today, Faye? Hello, Georgina. Today's a World Cup special here. We'll review the French, Moroccan, Croatian and Argentinian papers. Thank you very much. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. We begin the show in eastern Ukraine, where Kyiv's forces have attacked the headquarters of Russia's mercenary Wagner Group. Well, I'm joined on the line now by Dr. Jenny Mathers, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at Aberystwyth University. Jenny, good to have you back again. What is the Wagner Group? So the Wagner Group is uh, basically a Russian private military company. Now, it's interesting for several reasons. I think, uh, firstly, because strictly speaking, private military companies are illegal in Russia. They're ruled out by the Constitution. Um, So it it shouldn't exist, but it does. Um, It emerged back in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea, uh, and Wagner soldiers were among those soldiers who appeared on the streets of cities and towns in Crimea uh, as part of these uh, sort of little green men, Mm. so-called, who who appeared mysteriously. Um, But since then, Wagner Group soldiers have been active in all kinds of different places. They've been active in Syria, uh, in Libya, uh, in the Central African Republic, in Mali, in Sudan. Uh, They've been involved in helping to prop up uh, various regimes, involved in various kinds of civil conflicts, uh, but also very much involved in money-making activities, such as uh, mining for gold and and precious metals uh, and jewels and this sort of thing. So they've got this sort of dual security and economic uh, dimension to them. But I suppose it gives the Russian state a degree of plausible deniability. Absolutely. Until just recently, uh, everyone denied that the Wagner Group uh, even existed or had anything to do with the Russian state. Um, you know, so it, it enabled uh, Putin and, and others in the Kremlin to uh, use them as an additional source of a sort of paramilitary force uh, to do uh, Russia's bidding uh, in different parts of the world to try and expand uh, Russia's influence, um, and also, of course, to, to make money for key uh, members of the of the inner circle of, of Putin. Um, of which uh, the leader of, of the Wagner group, Evgeny Prigozhin, uh, is the most prominent. Tell us a little bit more about Prigozhin. Prigozhin is an interesting character. Um, he's also known as Putin's chef because he runs a number of sort of restaurants and catering businesses, which which get uh, very lucrative uh, Kremlin contracts. And you see him sometimes dressed in chef whites uh, standing next to Putin in some of the old pictures. 
So he's interesting because he's close to Putin. Uh, he's interesting because also uh, lately he has been really um, much more upfront about the fact that the Wagner Group exists. He's been recruiting openly in Russian prisons, um, and he's also acknowledged publicly uh, back in September uh, that he is involved in the group and that he founded it back in 2014, whereas previously he didn't acknowledge it. Um, and I think very recently what we've seen is uh, the Wagner Group being really in competition with the, the Ministry of Defense forces uh, that Russia has put into the field in Ukraine. Um, Wagner Group forces have been very active in different parts of the, the war in Ukraine. Um, they've been responsible for some really um, appalling human rights uh, abuses uh, and, you know, have treated uh Ukrainian civilians very brutally. They've also treated their own soldiers very brutally. Uh, there's a, a really notorious video that's circulated online showing the really brutal execution of a member of the Wagner group who allegedly deserted and then was captured and, and was brought back and sort of treated as a traitor. Um, so there's lots of different aspects of this group and of Prigozhin, uh, which have you know close ties to the Kremlin. They've got close ties to the intelligence services and the military. Um, and they're, you know, they're very, very interesting at the same time, very, very murky and, and exceptionally dangerous. So what happened in this strike during which at least a couple of their members are, are alleged to have been killed? Mm. So this was a strike on on a hotel, actually, in, in Luhansk, and occupied Luhansk in eastern Ukraine, uh, which is being used apparently by uh, Wagner Group as a sort of a headquarters where a number of their key people were located uh, when this strike happened. And I mean, it's, it's extraordinary in, in several ways. Firstly, I suppose it, it demonstrates that Ukrainian intelligence uh, on what happens in occupied areas of, of Ukraine is very good. Uh, they know where where the different sort of headquarters and command centers and so on are. Um, it also indicates that they're able to strike behind uh, Russian lines. And so that's important, too. I think also symbolically, it's it's really important that they were able to uh, attack successfully um, a headquarters of Wagner Group. Wagner has got a real uh, sort of outsized reputation in terms of of how people view it and and viewed with a great deal of of, uh, of awe and respect and fear. And so, being able to to launch a, a successful strike and 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 kill several members of the group is is very important, I think, uh, for Ukrainian morale and also to demonstrate that you know Ukraine is able to to carry off these kinds of operations successfully. And which weapons are Ukrainians using to achieve this? Well, we think they're using um, possibly drones. Um, and, you know, it, it's the Ukrainians are very good at, at operational secrecy. They're, so they're very effective at uh, trying to make sure and making sure that that uh, details of their operations don't get out when they don't want them to. Um, but but drones do seem like the most likely uh, sort of suspects for these kinds of operations. Mm. And Jenny, do you think that we're any closer to uh, any kind of negotiated settlement? Well, that's a difficult question because I think, of course, negotiation depends upon the two sides being willing to sit down at the table and, and discuss things. So far, um, the Russian side has has called for negotiations. They've called for ceasefires, but they haven't been willing to take any steps towards uh, the Ukrainians' uh, sort of demands or concerns. Russia has basically said, well, we'll have a ceasefire, we'll freeze things as they are now, uh, and then we'll then we'll see. And of course, the Ukrainians aren't willing to accept that because their their momentum is is really going very much forward. They're having successes, and they feel that that if they press ahead, that they will be more successful in pushing the Russians back and maybe even pushing them out entirely. Um, I think so. At the moment, neither side is really willing to to sit down and talk seriously. 
Jenny, thank you very much indeed. That was Dr Jenny Mathers. Now, here's Emma Sell with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Peru's new president, Dina Baluarte, has announced she will send Congress a proposal to move forward the general elections by two years to April 2024. It follows widespread protests where two young people died and four were injured after the former president, Pedro Castillo, was ousted over his attempt to dissolve Congress. Ukraine's top security officials have ordered punitive measures against seven senior clerics as part of a crackdown on a branch of the Orthodox Church with long-standing ties to Moscow. More than 30 priests are under investigation and the intelligence services have mounted a series of raids in monasteries and churches across the country to root out pro-Russian clerics. Iran says it has executed its second prisoner detained amid the nationwide protests challenging the country's theocracy. Majidreza Ran-Navad was hanged in public early on Thursday in the city of Mashhad after a court convicted him of the charge of enmity against God after finding he had stabbed to death two members of the paramilitary Baziz resistance force. And the EU Economy Commissioner Pablo Gentiloni says the corruption and money laundering scandal at the European Parliament is seriously damaging the Parliament's reputation. Belgian prosecutors have charged four people and seized more than 600,000 US dollars. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Emma. Barricades and roadblocks are still in place in majority Serb parts of North Kosovo as tensions remain high between Belgrade and Pristina. The protests started after the deployment of police to majority Serb areas and the arrest of an ethnic Serb former police officer. The EU, US and UK are all calling for the removal of the barricades and for Belgrade and Pristina to de-escalate. Well, let's get more from Monocle's man in the Balkans. That's Guy Delaunay. Guy, thanks for joining us. What's the current situation? Well, currently, it's very difficult to get around North Kosovo, is the situation. You've got roads blocked by buses and heavy goods vehicles, and that includes crossings between Serbia and Kosovo. So the only way into North Kosovo now, if you're coming from Serbia, is to go through the south of Kosovo, which is the the way that you go through to Pristina, rather than the usual way that, that ethnic Serbs would enter uh, Kosovo uh, over what Serbia calls the administrative crossing and what Kosovo calls its national border. Um, schools have been cancelled as well in the north of Kosovo. And, uh, you know, we've got this war of words going on between Serbia and Kosovo. We've got Prime Minister Kurti of Kosovo saying that criminal gangs are responsible for these barricades. And Serbia's President Aleksandr Vucic saying they're merely ordinary people who are worried about their safety. And what was the trigger for all of this, Guy? So the final straw was, as you mentioned, the arrest of this ethnic Serb former police officer in North Mitrovica, which is the largest majority Serb area of North Kosovo. Um, Now, the authorities in Pristina say that he's a suspect in an incident at an election office where there was some violence last week. Um, the, The bigger issue, though, I think more than just this arrest, is the fact that the authorities in Pristina have deployed police from the south to these majority Serb areas in the north. And this has happened in essence because there aren't any police officers in the north anymore because all of the ethnic Serb officers, around 600 of them, resigned en masse last month in protest at another dispute, this one involving vehicle license plates, which listeners might remember. So, you know, Pristina saying we're just bringing law to the area and the ethnic Serb saying, hang on a second, by the agreements which have been made between Belgrade and Pristina, you're not meant to do this. We're meant to have our own police and you're not meant to be sending yours. Mm, Because deployment of police does always cause issues in North Kosovo. 
That's right. They're seen very much as an instrument of the majority Albanian government in Pristina. Um, the North, as I mentioned, had its own ethnic police, uh, ethnic Serb police officers, uh, who, although they are part or were part of the Kosovo police force, they were crucially members of the ethnic Serb community. Now, what people in North Kosovo fear, and this is genuine, there's, there's certainly some hype around this, there's certainly politicians saying certain things, there's other people stirring things up, but genuinely, ethnic Serbs living in North Kosovo are worried that deployment of any sort of authority by Pristina is going to be bad news for them, because they remember what happened, for example, in 2004, where there was a lot of violence against ethnic Serb people in uh, Kosovo, and uh, quite a number of them were killed, more than a dozen were killed, hundreds more injured, and thousands of families had to flee their homes. Uh, this is the kind of thing that people fear a repeat of when they're seeing um, the, I suppose, the arm of Pristina reaching into their neighbourhood. Mm. What's Kosovo's point of view? Well, I mean, as far as their point of view, this is all down to Serbian troublemaking and fear-mongering. Uh, Prime Minister Albin Kurti has been very busy saying that uh, it, this is all really Serbia looking for an excuse to militarise the situation, to send its troops into Kosovo. After all, Serbia still doesn't recognise Kosovo's unilateral declaration of independence from Serbia, which it made in 2008. And you know, Mr Kurti is saying all of this is being stirred up by Belgrade. They're behind all of these problems. They're behind the people on on the barricades, and they're the ones who need to back down. And what's Serbia saying? Well, uh, President Vucic of Serbia is calling for Serbs to be calm and peaceful and not fall for provocations. There's also talk about whether, you know, uh, Pristina is planning false flag operations to discredit ethnic Serbs in, in the north. Um, but I think the really key thing from Mr Vucic's remarks are is that he's calling on ethnic Serbs in Kosovo to respect NATO's K4 peacekeepers and the EU's ULEX police. Now, this is really crucial because the, the, uh, the president presence of, in particular, of the NATO K4 uh, peacekeepers prevents anything serious from going on. There are 4,000 multinational troops in Kosovo. Serbia does not want to interface with them. Kosovo doesn't want to fall foul of them. That's what's keeping anything bigger from happening at the moment. And, and they're going to, to meet today, aren't they, the National Security That's Council? Right. Yeah, we've got a National Security Council meeting in Belgrade at uh, three o'clock local time. We've also been hearing quite a lot from various uh, international officials on this. The EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, again calling for de-escalation, again calling for these barricades to be taken down and saying how unhappy he was uh, that uh, the ULEX police came on the receiving end of a stun grenade over the weekend. Uh, that, he says, is completely unacceptable. We've also heard Germany's foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, uh, saying that she believes that the issues are coming from Belgrade on this occasion. Uh, so that, won't, uh, that will give Serbia certainly pause for thought about what it does next. Absolutely. Guy, thank you very much indeed. That was Guy Delaunay. And you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24.
You're back with The Briefing on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin and we're going to take a closer look at the Latin American papers now with Monocle's senior correspondent and uh, senior Brazilian too, <laughs> Fernando Augusto Fischeca. Fernando, you've just handed me a set of very, very colourful papers. Yes. Uh, but they've all got football on the front, so I'm going to try and appear to be interested because there is actually a very a deeply sociological, interesting side of this, even if kicking a small boy ball does not uh, do it for you. So... Uh, let's let's have a look at this kind of World, World Cup special. Well, Georgina, I, I kind of agree. You know, not everyone is a fan of football, but the World Cup is such a big event. And one thing I want to start in France. All I can tell you is good design is as exciting as a good goal in the World Cup. Look at this Liberation uh, front page uh, from the weekend. I mean, this is a thing of beauty. Mm. Uh, they have a picture of their best play- player, Kylian Mbappe. Uh, and basically it says Kylian Calling. Uh, it's mimicking the iconic... Uh, Clash uh, cover album London Calling as well. It's a thing of beauty. They used, again, the same palette of colors, the pink and the green. It's just beautiful. you know. And uh, so is he, to be fair. So is he as well. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it's almost shameful because I, I was looking at the British papers over the weekend. They didn't quite match an iconic cover like this as well. I wonder, I'm sure this helped uh, the French players as well, uh, in a way. So yes, I think good Football can also have some good design in the main uh, front pages here. In the, in the and of papers. course, Mbappe has become this absolute hero. I mean, he, absolutely. I mean, and, and France is heading to another final, the second in a row, perhaps the second title in a row as well. We don't know yet. Yeah, right. Morocco. I mean, they have to beat Morocco first. I have the front page of Le Matin here. And from all the four countries that are in the semi-final, Georgina, I think Morocco is undeniably the more historical one. Uh, even here on the headline, it says uh, it's a unique, inspiring victory because it's the first African and first Arab nation in a World Cup semi-final. And even the language is, is very emotional. Uh, it says Morocco carries the dreams and hopes of Africa and the Arab world. And Morocco, let's remember as well, they are a football nation. They, they, they absolutely love football. Uh, and there's quite a lot of interesting things about the football team as well. Of course, all of them, they come from Morocco. Moroccan descent, but not all of them necessarily were born in Morocco. Some of them were born in Spain, Canada, in France, but they decided uh, to play with what they say uh, motherland. So there's also interesting things about what where are you from? You know, mm. there's this aspect of nationality, which I find it quite fascinating. And there's uh, there's reports of uh, Air Morocco li- uh, laying on special flights from from Morocco t- uh, to Qatar for, for fans to go there. But I also wonder. I mean, looking at um, looking at how Moroccans in London were celebrating, the Edgware Road was just a kind of huge party mm. when Morocco won. And obviously, the same happened in France for both the French and the Moroccan win. When France and Morocco face off. What's that going to mean? I mean, are we looking at potential violence there? Well, I hope not. I hope it's more celebration because it's beautiful to celebrate. But yes, I mean, I think people will definitely keep an eye on it because, as you rightly said, even in a city like London, uh, you know, I could hear actually the celebrations in Soho as well after uh, the Morocco victory as well. Mm. Right. Where are we off to next? Uh, To Croatia. I mean, again, 
uh, we have the Vesenji list here, which is uh, some sort of the evening paper. And of course, uh, the Croatia fa- semi-final of Argentina is the main story there as well. And even though they were in the final right in 2018, isn't it fascinating, Georgina? It's a small country, less than 4 million people. What a remarkable story that they are... You know they are once again uh, at the semi-final, and and the reason the paper says, and I wonder if that's what makes Croatia different as well. We are a family. That's the secret of our success. It's a small nation, you know. So they have a very close connection with their players, including including Modric as well, which is the biggest star. And talking about Modric, I'm going to move on very slightly to the next country, Argentina. I have Clarín in front of me. They decided to do a story comparing the, the two countries' biggest stars from Croatia and Argentina, Messi and Modric. They said this duo, I mean, it's been 16 years in the making. That's when they first played against each other in a friendly match. And they also both played in Spain for different things. I think Messi was at Barcelona and Modric at Real Madrid. So they have this kind of... A little rivalry as well. And let's not forget, Croatia beat Argentina in the last World Cup for 3-0. So I'm sure the Argentinians are, you know, they are thirst for uh, this victory for sure. Absolutely. And then when you look at the British papers, of course, it's all about Harry Kane and how he missed and Kane pain and various headlines that that, that are all riffing on that. And with the British people absolutely kind of venting their ire on the team for not winning. Which it's not fair, in my opinion. I think they, you know, they were okay. I mean, France, in my opinion, they are one of the most uh, technically brilliant teams. I mean, it, w- it was going to always be a very hard one. And I think England, you know, did the country proud. Yeah. I mean, it was perhaps not the best result. Uh, and let's not forget, I had a double uh, defeat over the weekend, Brazil and England, my two <laughs> countries. So I'm a little bit disappointed, but I'm here strong. You know, and Harry Kane said an odd thing. He said, my head wasn't in the right place. And I wonder then how much your mental state plays into your physical uh, readiness for a match like that. I mean, look at the anxiety. I mean, the World Cup is the main story, wanting or not. So, of course, those players, they know they are going to be watched by millions. I mean, the the type of ratings and and the number of people that watch this is remarkable. I mean, it's almost unheard of uh, these days as well. Mm. Fernando, thank you very much indeed. That was our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, double loser this week in the football. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. Monocle offers something that you won't find elsewhere. A truly international perspective and unrivaled insights into business, culture, design and more. A present that lasts all year, bringing big ideas, stories of opportunity and plenty of optimism direct to your door. When you subscribe, you'll get a 10% discount in our shops and online. And of course, a free limited edition tote bag. As well as 10 issues of the magazine, you'll receive our annual specials and access to our exclusive digital travel guides. To round out our 15th anniversary year, For a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15.
finally on today's show, Monocle is heading to high altitude with the latest edition of our winter newspaper, Monocle Alpino, which has hit the newsstands. From Europe's mountainous peaks to its Arctic frontiers, our correspondents have been dispatched to snowy destinations to bring you an on-point selection of cold weather news. Well, I'm joined now by Monocle's foreign affairs editor, Alexis Self, to discuss one of the featured stories on the White House's revamped Arctic strategy, acknowledging the strategic value of Alaska. Alexis, uh, welcome down to the studio, normally to be seen slaving over your desk upstairs. Um, Which countries have a presence in the Arctic, in Alaska particularly? So the Arctic, official Arctic nations are Canada, Greenland, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Russia and the United States. They have territory in the Arctic region. But then there are a couple who are jostling for influence and want a piece of the pie. Uh, Denmark through its relationship with Greenland, the UK, whose northernmost islands are, are pretty far north. And then there's China, which which has increased its influence on pretty much every continent and sees the Arctic as one of the places where it will probably go toe-to-toe with the United States in the future in this sort of great power game that is is developing between those two countries. And, And what is the US strategy there and has it changed significantly? So... Though the US is is officially an Arctic nation through Alaska, it's the Arctic nation with the southernmost capital city, Washington, D.C., and perhaps it's the one which has less of an historic cold-weather culture. And this has affected its geopolitical strategy in the region, I think. And and the past year, you know, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Chinese posturing over Taiwan has has kind of reawoken the slumbering giant that that is the US and renewed its kind of gameness after the kind of strangely dovish nature of of Trump's foreign policy for great power competition. And in in October, the White House issued a revamped Arctic strategy, which acknowledged the strategic value of a region which is warming four times faster than the rest of the world, uh, which opens up new possibilities for fossil fuel extraction and maritime routes. And, And this revamped strategy led on from a white paper uh, put out by the Pentagon in, in, ja- in January 2021 titled Regaining Arctic Dominance. So how are they going to, to regain Arctic dominance? I mean, uh, there must be a lot of personnel and a lot of equipment involved in that. Yeah, so this new aspiration has led directly to the, to the reactivation of the 11th Airborne Division, which which unites all soldiers in Alaska under one insignia and a new nickname, the Arctic Angels. And it's the Arctic Angels to whom our reporter went to uh, perform uh, cold weather training with in in, uh, Alaska. While there, he uh, got to to, uh, got insight into how soldiers fight in the region, how they train in the region, and and what kind of equipment they use. Um, So the Pentagon has recently ordered 163 Beowulf BVS-10s, which is a Swedish all-terrain troop carrier. Um, And Congress has authorised the construction of the first new US icebreaker in 40 years, which is called the Polar Sentinel. And this will bolster the US Coast Guard's two-vessel icebreaker fleet, which when you consider that that Russia has about 40 icebreakers, shows you 
the kind of gap between where the US wants to be and where its competitors are. Absolutely. Uh, communication, is that a problem in such a remote part of the world? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, Alaskan ports, uh, which would supply any fighting force and, and from where they perhaps would be sent, are still liable to freeze over during winter. Um, and without the aforementioned icebreakers, this, this can mean that they're inaccessible for months on end, which is part of the thinking behind the construction of a long-awaited deep draft port in Nome, uh, which would supply uh, the US forces in the far north. Um, and apart from that, the Pentagon has, has spoken very favourably about the Arctic capabilities of Elon Musk's Starlink satellite internet system, which of course have played a, a pivotal role in communications for the Ukrainian army fighting against Russia. Yeah, I wonder just how long people are going to continue to be enthusiastic about Musk as he gets more and more kind of uh, extreme on Twitter. I think yeah. that's something we need to think about. Um, do many people actually live in this region? How does it uh, impact on the residents? Well, so some the biggest city in Alaska is Anchorage. And uh, in the big cities, I think that there's there's been more of an influx of, of people from uh, the rest of the continental United States. But outside of the big cities, Alaska is, is still predominantly populated by indigenous Alaskans. Um, and actually, they this, this group constitute the majority of the Alaska Territorial Guard. And um, there was a story a couple of months ago about, uh, and, and, and there's been lots of uh, press uh, concerned with how native Siberians, who are also uh, indigenous Arctic people um, have reacted to the mobilization of uh, the Russian army and two actually uh, sailed across the Bering Sea uh, and defected to Alaska, to the United States, to escape the draft. Um, by comparison, native uh, Alaskans appear to have embraced the strength and focus on, on Arctic defense um, and actually, as I said, constitute most of, of the territorial guard in the region and provide a lot of training and communications for the US soldiers who are based there. And of course, this is just one story that appears in Monocle Alpina from, from our journalist who was embedded with these troops. Just give us a quick look at what else we can expect from this seasonal paper. Yeah, so it's not all guns and, and you know, future doom, perhaps. There's lots of... of really uh, great wintry and fun stories in the paper. Um, I commissioned the great nature writer Cal Flynn um, to write about hibernation, why animals hibernate and why humans might want to hibernate too. Uh, there's what to do when you encounter a bear in the woods, written by our US editor Chris Lord, based on real life experiences. Um, and then there's, there's, there's you know, food uh, ideas and there's a, a wonderful city guide for Lillehammer in Norway if you're looking for somewhere to go skiing that's outside of the usual alpine resorts. Alexis, thank you very much indeed. That was Monocle's foreign affairs editor, Alexis Self, and Monocle Alpino is available on newsstands now. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Tom Webb, and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing is back at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. 